you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. The clandestine world of nuclear technology has long been a fascination amongst those interested in the often morbid world of atomic power, and the historical wake left from events brought about by the likes of the Manhattan Project, researching and testing of immense power, sometimes going awry. But before Chernobyl, before Three Mile Island, and before the disaster at Fukushima, there was an event on U.S. soil that surprisingly few people have heard of. In 1949, in the high desert of eastern Idaho, there began construction of a vast national reactor testing station. A military-backed project of installing experimental nuclear reactors dotting the countryside. Some remote, others in the backyards of America's suburbia. Projects that were to propel the U.S. well beyond its Soviet counterparts, and advance nuclear technology to an unprecedented degree. But, in 1961, at an experimental reactor known as SL-1, something went horrifically wrong. Join us as we delve into the first ever nuclear meltdown on U.S. soil. The disaster at Idaho Falls. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome. Uh, we are going atomic, going nuclear. Going nuclear. Going crazy. <laughs> yeah, if you will, so to speak. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're getting into some really cool history for you guys uh, and a little bit of a mystery, a whodunit. I would say so. Mm -hmm. I didn't really anticipate that going into the, the reading of the book that we're going to get into in this episode and just the story in general. And then it was kind of a head scratcher. It leaves us uh, with a lot of questions, that's for sure. Yes. So we wanted to uh, thank Kimberly B., our Patreon member, for suggesting this topic and for also sending us a copy of the book, Idaho Falls, The Untold Story of America's First Nuclear Meltdown by William McEwan. Yeah. We're going to be referencing this guy a lot during this episode. Uh, it's a really great read. He does an awesome job of humanizing the story and making it more than just what the reports kind of dulled it down to be. I would, yeah, I would absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Kim, thank you so much. Amazing suggestion. Just oh, yeah. awesome. And thank you for sending the book. We had never heard of this before. And we're pretty sure a lot of you, especially even in America, haven't heard of this either because it was kind of uh, 
you know, shunned a little bit. It wasn't told in classrooms. It's one of those forgotten history stories. Yeah, like there was some sort of short docs and things made about it later on. But definitely, yeah, it was it was sort of seemed to have been swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get right into it, I guess we just wanted to say, we did say this on our film Friday a couple days ago, but just to reiterate that we do have our Patreon sendouts on the way for all of our members in the yeah. community there. And if I feel like a few have gotten to their... Uh, destinations and probably a few haven't, but you know, we're still waiting to see. <laughs> the postal system is a strange bird right now with the way things are are in the world. So yep. uh, yeah, anyway, let us know when you guys get those packages because we want to make sure you get them and we're just excited for you to get them. So it's, it's almost like a lottery. <laughs> I know, right? What's going to get lost in the you mail? You put it in it's the not. mail slot and you're just like staring at it and you're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> 25 out of 50? I don't know. <laughs> well, hey, that's not bad. No bad. Ready to jump into this? Let's do it. Today we're talking about really the dark side of the military and of early nuclear power plants in the United States. And it's kind of a mostly forgotten, yet it's not that far in the distant past, you know, the seemingly limitless wild, wild west of atomic energy in the nuclear age of the 1950s. It's really not that long ago, yet it sort of feels that way. But specifically on this episode, we're going to dive into an event that, like Amber alluded to, a lot of people don't know that much about. And at a glance, it might sort of seem small potatoes compared to the likes of places like Chernobyl or other massive, more modern nuclear disasters. But this was unique and tied to a lot of the same destruction, obviously, brought by the military during the Second World War and other experiments and things like that. Except this was in the backyard of suburban USA. So this was the very first American nuclear meltdown, which is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. So some of the questions we're getting into is like, was there a government cover-up? Was there espionage involved? Was it simply human error? Systemic flaws? Was it sabotage? What caused the meltdown of January 3rd, 1961 at Idaho Falls? Okay, so let's get into kind of the, the origins of the story here. So in 1949, in the high desert of eastern Idaho, there began this just vast national reactor testing station. And this led to various other nuclear reactors ending up dotting the countryside, some of them more remote and some sort of in the backyards, if you will, of America's suburbia. And one of these reactors was known as SL-1. And this is the site we're talking about today, the site of an incident gone horrifically wrong. SL-1 reactor... It was an experimental nuclear reactor, and SL-1 stood for Stationary Low Power Reactors, and there was a bunch of these dotting the countryside, like I said. One of the main purposes of these reactors was to research and gain the ability to provide power for more remote radar outposts in the Arctic. These were military-backed installations, and at the time, they had been using diesel fuel at these remote outposts. So they were really trying to harness the power of nuclear technology, and of course, they saw what it could do when they dropped the bombs. Mm-hmm. So this research has been uh, connected to some other very interesting things as well. And we're talking about sabotage potential in this story, but it's linked to some sort of clandestine projects surrounding nuclear technology. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But like Amber said, we're talking about the book by author William McEwen today, or at least that's sort of uh, the crux of the information because he just did such a great job. Who's Yeah, we'll be referencing him throughout the episode. And he described the situation as, quote, one of the most mysterious human dramas in industrial history, with two, quote, main players, Jack Burns and Dick Legg, two 20-something post-war 1950s military men from the East Coast, both with very humble beginnings that saw prospects uh, in the sort of emerging industry of nuclear energy. 
Both Jack Burns and Dick Legg found themselves at the Idaho Falls SL1 reactor project, and both men started out with great optimism. However, these days were characterized by an extreme lack of fear of the risks involved, Mm -hmm. and surely uh, this was kind of a result of a lack of knowledge and research. As we said before, this was the early days, the heydays. It was (laughs) the heyday. They didn't understand. They called these things glorified water heaters. So that kind of gives you an idea of what their perception was. This is the 1950s. Japan had been bombed. Protests were made. And there was this overall fascination with nuclear technology and the power that one could wield with it. Right. It was a veritable orgy of insane nuclear testing that was happening at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, SL1 was just part of this bigger establishment of what some might say were like totally, I wouldn't say totally ill-equipped, but as each generation came in of personnel, they became increasingly less trained, I guess right. would be the right word. Yeah. And uh, less knowledgeable all overall of what they were getting themselves into. Yeah. And a big part of that, I think, was because obviously it's a it's a military-backed project and they're looking for results quick. They were doing, obviously, uh, research for further weapon advancement. But like I said, too, like powering Arctic installations for like remote research and all kinds of crazy stuff. There was like nuclear submarines they were trying to launch in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. The USS Nautilus, that'll oh, come up a little bit later. Very yes. cool. That's cool. I don't want to blame the military, though, because I don't think it was a result of that. I think it was the crux of having multiple uh, players involved, including the Atomic Energy Commission and then also uh, privately backed industry that was kind of in charge of managing these operations. It's a combination of naivete and and wanting to see results quickly, I think, Mm -hmm. because they, you know, we'll talk about the education program in a second here. But the development of these nuclear programs through the U.S. military you know, more or less, like we sort of said, started in the 1950s. So this particular program, the Army Nuclear Power Program, ANPP, was established in 1954. And this was a joint effort between the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Atomic Energy Commission to develop these power plants for military use Mm -hmm. and testing and research and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, for example, there was a lot of stuff that was sort of kept under wraps that was a pretty destructive that was a part and associated with these types of programs. For example, there was Castle Bravo at the Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. This was a part of Operation Castle, a series of nuclear tests uh, designed to basically develop an anti-aircraft deliverable thermal nuclear weapon that was more effective than the A-bomb they dropped in the Second World War. It caused a lot of destruction. Yeah, an an Um, aircraft deliverable, not (laughs) anti-aircraft. Oh, sorry. Did I say anti-aircraft? Sorry, an (laughs) aircraft deliverable. And yeah, this was one of the worst nuclear fallouts ever. No human casualties, but lots of just natural destruction. There was radioactive traces that made it as far as Australia from that particular one. To be fair, there wasn't much need for propaganda at this time. You know what I mean? Like they didn't need to sort of convince people that nuclear testing was a good thing because it was a shiny new toy uh, for for people in the 1950s and for suburbia. It was going to be this mm. this limitless power that was going to supply all your houses as as you're dotting the countryside, moving out of the cities and things like that. As far yeah. as the public was concerned, think Jetsons. That's what Very everyone thought. So. They're entering the shiny new era of of clean energy, limitless energy, and they were going to get it before the Russians. That was a huge part of it too. Exactly. Was the Cold War. 
But in particular, yeah, Idaho had an interesting history prior to this. Uh, the Lost River Desert is described by McEwan in the introduction of his book as that of a very desolate place, one that was mostly untouched by the gold rushes of the mountains of the north. It was passed over by the fur traders who just saw the terrain as too harsh and unforgiving. Mm -hmm. The desert, you know, it's known for extremes. So they decided that this barren landscape harbored more hazards than pelts and kind of made their way... <laughs> Uh, elsewhere. Sure. So basically this valley and its scathing desert climate went largely untouched until the hardy adaptable Mormons showed up in the 1880s and they decided that southern Idaho was favorable to the increasing crowded conditions of Utah. Mm -hmm. So they were setting up farms and these like patchwork towns is what they were kind of called along the east and southern edges of the desert. And so these tiny towns uh, were dotted around these military testing zones. And they were mostly Mormon, like I said, and wholesome, although there was a seedy underbelly that did exist in places like Idaho Falls, if you knew where to look. <laughs> and many of these military men quickly learned the hidden truths of the clubs, the gambling, liquor, and women. In Idaho Falls. Exactly. You can find it everywhere. Yeah, and Jack Burns, in particular, definitely took to that. And Dick Lake, too. They were both involved and even though they both eventually ended up with their own women they <laughs> things are a little bit loose in those times i don't know can we just acknowledge too before yeah. we continue that just the name dick leg okay we had to we had to write it in there as that because it just sounds too good well, that's what you refer to him in the book as. i know i mean but we've watched some documentaries i we're pretty his richard. Name's richard okay richard yeah but at the time i mean people wanted to go as dick after reading the book, it's hard to go back to Richard because you're just like used to saying that over and over it again. It makes me think of like the Maltese Falcon or something like that. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Okay, so all that being said, the military ultimately found what we would say is the ultimate use for this desert landscape. So basically, this is the perfect place to install nuclear testing ground stations and practice blowing things up. Yes, indeed. Which is exactly what happened on January 3rd of 1961. Not because they wanted it to, just because it did happen. Yeah. And the mystery of it does continue to swirl. Uh, it was a routine maintenance shift, a routine evening that turned extraordinary in less than the blink of an eye. And it transformed SL-1 from a, quote, glorified water heater into an unprecedented nuclear disaster that still remains very poorly understood. Uh, by the vast majority of Americans. Obviously, the people that studied this, they wrote incredibly detailed reports and got to the nitty-gritty of exact, took months, if not years, of review, too. But anyway. But still don't know exactly why. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's the mystery of it all. So, NERTS is kind of what it was referred to back then, and that's kind of just the National Research Testing Station. It's now referred to as the Idaho National Laboratory. So, if you look it up online, that's kind of their... Uh, their go-to name. The name National Laboratory always seems to have some sort of like a just a clandestine feel Ooh, to it as well. It's got like it? a very Stranger Things vibe to it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. It has Stranger Things written all over it. Not suggesting that. Not but, that we're, but still. <laughs> we're not going that nuclear. <laughs> it's not that far nuclear. <laughs> we're not getting mutated creatures out of the Idaho Falls plant no. that we know of, people. That we know. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. I wonder, though. Different story for a different day. Exactly. But this consists of about 890 square miles of uh, sagebrush desert and basalt fields uh, on what's known as the Snake River Plain in southern Idaho. So this is from uh, the... Idaho National Laboratory Research website, and it says here, quote, the site where 52 pioneering nuclear reactors were designed and constructed, including the first reactor to generate usable amounts of electricity. 
It was here that nuclear-generated electricity first powered an American community. So they're pretty proud of that. It's pretty profound, really. There was a lot of accomplishments that they made here, so I don't want to belittle that by any means, but there obviously were some accidents, too. (laughs) I love this quote here from McEwan, though. He says here, Here in the desolate desert of Idaho lived, quote, the atomic-powered version of the American dream. End quote. Mm-hmm. So this was a place where he says American men fearlessly played with the atom. Yes. And like you said, Andrew, this was a promise to everyone. It was a promise for a better future. They had no regard for the consequences of playing with this like untamed power because they didn't really understand what they were doing to a no. certain degree. Even though and in my mind, I always have this like weird sort of like, contradiction in that because of the fact that japan happened i, I was just gonna say that like you know what i mean exactly so, but it's because me, of the context though is like it is yeah the, that was a weapon this is not this is True. this is a power plant this is us harnessing is, it right. so it's like it's a very humanist thing like to think that we can master something and then you wield it in the ways that we want to totally which we still do to this day. Obviously, nuclear power still thing. <laughs> and there's still been very around. modern disasters, obviously, hearkening back to Ooh, Japan. Fukushima and, Daiichi, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's probably the most recent, I guess. The largest, most and recent. The largest, I'm sure there's been some yeah. small little things happen that we don't even hear about. I wonder. In developing Ooh, countries, especially potentially, like or Russian, whatever. That'd be interesting to get into Russian conspiracies, really. I wonder how many stuff. power plants exist in Siberia that we don't even know of and like things like that. It's like weird testing places the freaky part is that it's not really that far away from british columbia like you know it's just just over like you know it's that arc way hop in a canoe and we're just a couple of paddles away (laughs) (laughs) anyways yeah so getting into the whole like what people were uh, inducted to as far as like uh, nuclear training programs during this time period of the 1950s basically fort belvoir served as the training grounds for everyone including burns and leg even though they were in the same class together, they didn't really know each other is kind of the impression that Mickey Wong tries to paint. Like you would have been way too busy with your training to really have any time to get to know one another. And he kind of describes it as being very tightly regimented. It's a crash course. That's the key. And it's only four months. And so it's a highly rigorous academic program that fed into another four months of specialized training that determined whether you were actually going to become a mechanic, an electrician, or an electronics technician, or you could also become a health physics person. So I was kind of studying the um, the, the effects on health caused sure. by these types of nuclear energies and things like that. Four months. And the health physicists were the ones that were on the ground and, uh, in the aftermath of the SL1 disaster. And they were the ones figuring out how to how to figure it all out, essentially. And they, tough, they kind of... gig. They did, yeah. And they had really terrible deaths later on in life, which was really sad, but... We'll get to that. Yes. So basically eight months of theory and classwork were all it took to be entered into the shiny new field of nuclear power. And they actually, this was really interesting. So they had a full scale replica of like a a nuclear power plant control room. Right. So this kind of reminds me of a lot of, I don't I hate to say it, but like movie sets from like the 50s, 60s, 70s. Like even I'm thinking, um, oh my gosh, uh, the one that we love to watch so much about the, the submarine. Just reminds me of that, right? You get all the controls. Voyage to the bottom of the sea. Voyage, yeah, exactly. Right. But essentially, yeah, so they had to go through this full-scale replica, and they were just, like, subjected to any and all potential scenarios, disaster potentials, anything like that. So they were pretty rigorously trained, I would say, even though it is, like, eight months, like, 
Yeah, I wouldn't say to that. To work with. Well, I, I would say the opposite of that personally, but that's just me. I feel like it's relative, though, too. Just the facts, right? So sure, I'm, I'm sure. layering my own um, perspective, I guess, within that. But So they also did have to memorize all of the schematic piping diagrams and electric diagrams of the entire power plant. They had to know the location and function of every valve, every pipe, every device in the entire plant, says McEwan. That was a quote from page 25. Right. But he, so he got, is, is this very interesting, again, kind of a juxtaposition almost where it's like, it's described as very rigorous, yet it's only this like really short, like less than a year. Like people need to go to school for four years just to get an arts degree these days. So I'm just thinking like, do you, <laughs> yeah, I know this is the early days. I just think that it would, they needed bodies. They needed people to work at these stations and you couldn't just poach MIT researchers and stuff like that. Like, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what happens nowadays. Like, do you think anyone working at a facility like this nowadays in a position like that wouldn't have a more rigorous degree under their belt? Clearly more. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're like the janitor. Do you have to have an advanced degree to be like hey, a cleaner? Bob Lazar, man. Was he I, the janitor? Right? Was he a, was he a engineer? A really was point, he whatever? Actually. I don't know. That's a good example. Yeah, I didn't even think about that one. Hmm. So from there, um, the trainees would move into the real field where they were placed uh, with experienced workers and as equipment operators. So they're basically in a, what would you call it? Like almost like a mentorship? Yeah, yeah. And so both uh, Jack Burns and Dick Leg were selected to take the quote next step to become these licensed equipment operators. And so that's what ultimately brought them to SL1 and the Lost River Desert. Not talking bulldozers, we're talking nuclear reactors, equipment <laughs> operators. Yeah, no kidding. So they were both part of what was known as like the second generation of power plant operators. The first generation that attended uh, Fort Belvoir were all older guys and they had much more experience in like other capacities like war. Like they sure. were chiefs, they were sergeants, they were men who had seen real action. Right. And a lot of these newbies at SL1 were mostly straight out of academy. So as each successive generation came in, they were what was viewed as like increasingly less competent, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not to, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah, because, well, by their seniors at least. Like, and even we'll get into it more, but Dick Legg and Jack Burns both had issues with that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, added to all of these complexities is the fact that it was a sort of decentralized project. There were three main sort of, what would you call it, organizations. So, it was the military, so the army. The Atomic Energy Commission, like we said before, and then they also had a civilian contractor, which was known as Combustion Engineering, Inc. So all of these research installations in Idaho were a combined effort of this joint management between these three. Right. And the civilian contractors kind of came and went. So Combustion Engineering uh, was actually replaced. They replaced... It wasn't Westinghouse. It was something like that, though. And I think it might have been Westinghouse. Was it Westinghouse? I re- yeah. think I remember reading that. And that was an issue with SL1, was the fact that these these management companies were coming and going and there was basically no uh, procedures in place set forth by this new combustion engineering management company. So there was That's, a lot of holes, yeah. a lot of gaps. You don't want gaps when you're running a, a nuclear, nuclear reactor. reactor. <laughs> That's so bizarre too. Like just even 
just like what a business to be in, you know, like being yeah. a private contractor and working at stuff like that, yes. especially when it is so experimental at that stage in the 1950s into the 60s. Exactly. You know I mean? It's different. And now. it's interesting, too, to think that it's the private side that uh, most people are trying to get into because there's more money there. So that's what a lot of these military men were ultimately trying to do because Dick Clegg and Jack Burns were both from very modest upbringing. So they thought if they could kind of like go up the ladder through the military and then get hired on by one of these other firms that they would basically have it made right yeah so yeah among the challenges of these like joint operations there were like rivalries chap relations uh, basically like politics right competing of aims of nerds and all this kind of stuff nerds nerds and so the army was in charge of the soldiers sailors and airmen that were all assigned to the base and the presence of the aec so they were actually in charge of overseeing the entire project but they were very distant and everyone that was spoken to, like in this book that we read, and even just general research kind of said that it was a very ineffectual influence on the overall program and culture, including safety and training. So that's bad. Mm, a very hands-off approach. Yes, exactly. And then added to that is the fact that the contractor, Combustion Engineering, had taken over the day-to-day operations, and they hadn't yet made detailed operations manuals. So the more experienced operators were griping over this, and they believed that this next wave of operators were too unruly. They lacked discipline, they lacked direction, and they lacked these uh, operations sort of procedures. So for the people who don't, I mean, obviously we'll come to this much later when we're talking about all kinds of different theories and stuff, but for those who are just strictly straight up, this was an accident or whatever, would sort of point, this is sort of writing on the wall to me. Like people would look Mm -hmm. at this and be like, look, these older operators are ticked off at these private contractors there isn't even a standard manual for the pass off scary right that seems very strange all you really have is the eight-month program and then yeah. the picking of the people and then you have the mentorship from the people that kind of take them under their wing once they come on and that's where um dick leg and jack burns kind of found themselves and then yeah like we'll get into the sort of the more specifics for their specific cases but Basically, this kind of led to chronic management problems, um, lack of staff oversight, a lot of things that, like even just general things like horseplay going on that weren't checked. And it's like that, like you think military, you think discipline. So it's kind of this like very sad thing. And a lot of people, when they compared it to similar projects conducted by the Navy or the Air Force, aside from one very sour nuclear debacle that involved a nuclear powered airplane <laughs> um, there were these operations were much more sophisticated than sl1 and the army's operations right um so again it kind of reminds me of when we were watching <laughs> space force and it was like everyone's like poo-pooing what was it like the army was not really getting pooed on but who <laughs> was it was the uh oh my gosh um i'm thinking of not the Navy. What were the other people? Like, it's like the National Guard or something. They were oh, the, like, the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard. <laughs> the Coast Guard. You're behind they have the Salvation Army. hierarchy, right, within the different branches yeah. of the military. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, so the Navy and the Air Force got a lot more cred when it came to their sophistication of project management. And so essentially, yeah, a lot of people point to these factors as, like, contributing to what eventually what happened. And in addition to this, you know, the sort of this lack of oversight, the lack of protocols and things like this there's this obviously very very prominent overarching reality of the cold war 
and the cultural realities that were directly associated with Americans and the idea of suburbia and freedom and this kind of stuff. And it was a factor that played heavily into the nuclear attitudes and the aims of Americans and basically the reason for SL-1, really, when we break mm-hmm. it down, and these testing facilities. This was a prototype reactor designed in mind to power, like we said earlier, the ambitious polar quote, early warning systems. It was a radar program that was in the Arctic Circle that was designed to monitor Soviet activity, especially nuclear subs and stuff like that, because both Mm -hmm. countries were trying to develop those at a rapid pace. Mm -hmm. And this was a quote from a Stanford report on the history and the nature of the SL-1 reactor associated with some of the difficulties in establishing power in the remote Arctic. And I just thought this was really interesting because of the the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So this is how it reads. Residing in such remote locations meant that there was a very high cost to refueling and consequently in high demand for a low-power, long-lasting energy source. The solution that was proposed to combat this problem was construction of simple, low-power, on-site nuclear reactors that could run for long periods of time with little interference and lessen the burden in resupplying the outposts. Once plans for such a facility had been designed, a preliminary prototype was constructed before wider adoption to determine the viability of the plan. This was the origin of the SL-1 reactor. So -hmm. just to kind of hit that home, how intimately this is tied, it seems like just this energy project in the backyards of suburban Idaho, and it's intimately linked to nuclear sub-technology, the Cold War Soviet invasions. And this will play into some theories and stuff like that now. So now that we kind of understand a little bit more about the technology and the political factors at play, we're going to take a closer look at the two men um, and the integral roles they would play the night of this infamous meltdown at SL1. But before we do, we are going to take a quick break for better help. We here at Into the Portal know that there are many out there who suffer from thoughts and feelings that interfere with overall happiness and well-being. I'd say that's especially true in these strange times we find ourselves in most recently here in Canada and around the world. BetterHelp is there for you with licensed professional counselors who are available remotely in a safe and private online environment. Yeah, totally. It's amazing how modern technology can enable us to get the help we need on our own time and through your own preferred methods of contact, including secure video or phone sessions, plus online chat and text messaging with your therapist too. What's really great is how BetterHelp is available worldwide. Anything you share with your specially matched therapist is completely confidential, and you can change counselors at any time for no additional fee. BetterHelp has licensed professionals who are specialized in everything from depression, anxiety, family conflicts, and many other areas that may not be locally available to you. And best of all, it's truly affordable. And all Into the Portal listeners get 10% off your first month using discount code PORTAL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash portal. That's P-O-R-T-A-L. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that can make a difference in your life. That's betterhelp.com slash portal using discount code portal. P-O-R-T-A-L. And we're back. Let's get into the stories of Dick Legg and Jack Burns, uh, the men behind what we're talking about today. And they're important because ultimately the lives of these two men play into the ultimate why behind what happened on January 3rd, 1961. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think in the book that we read, uh, McKeown, he does a really good job of humanizing these two men. He made them ordinary yet relatable. Um, he distanced 
his perspective appropriately, I think, by placing their character in the broader context of the cultural zeitgeist of nuclear possibilities and uh, all this stemming from this, like we said before, the limitless nature of atomic energy mm-hmm. and these like Jetson-style futurist imaginings, <laughs> endless energy for all, a golden age for the American industrial capitalist dream. And that's really what grabbed these two, was the the potential and the opportunity. And back in the 1950s, none of these like modern notions that kind of originated in the 70s and 80s and this is like these notions of all the dangers and horrors of atomic energy. None of that was there lurking in the minds of these industrious young Americans looking to beat out the Russians in any regard. Yeah. And like uh, Mickey one says here, it was a seductive idea using nondescript uranium ore to transform the world. <laughs> and like we said, like Jack Burns and Dick Legg were average at best. They had very little education. They were riding on the coattails of the army to further their career ambitions in atomic energy. And both had eyes on the possibilities of success in the emerging private commercial industry. So they were still, quote, unformed, says McEwan, still works in progress. They were typical American boys on the cusp of manhood at that age when character, talent, and limitations are just beginning to emerge, end quote. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's jump right into the life of Jack Burns here then. He essentially, you know, he packed up and moved his family, his wife, Arlene. They had a young toddler named Jackie from the East Coast. Uh, He grew up in Utica, New York. He was born in 1939. He had multiple siblings and he grew up with a really kind of normal life, active lifestyle, full of sports, including alpine skiing and water sports. He was sort of known as a daredevil by nature, someone who, quote, played hard and fast and a happy-go-lucky guy, according to his friends. But he was also a man that had to do things his way or else he would have a really nasty temper that could flare up quite easily and something his superiors were quick to note at the SL1 reactor. So this is potentially Mm -hmm. something that comes up. His temper is repeatedly referred to in relation to his character, work ethic, and relationship with his uh, young wife, Arlene. It could be described as his ultimate Achilles heel, really, and perhaps one of the factors uh, of his early demise, mm-hmm. if you will. Jack's wife, Arlene, is described uh, as his childhood sweetheart, typical for this era, right? Someone that yearned for security and the good things in life, and that's a quote directly from the book, something that both her and Jack were really in a hurry to do. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of that, to me, that's almost like a, a parallel with the industry itself. Oh, you yeah. know, it's like the rush to suburbia. Yep. You know, everyone wanted that. It's just mm-hmm. the simple life, get out there, get a big yard, big house, right? Yeah, exactly, all of that. And he, he was described, very, he, he felt the same way, described as someone who wanted to, quote, grow up fast, according to his father. And so he joined the military by the time he was 17. He actually fudged his, uh, his birth record so that he could get in early. And he, he was married by 19. So he was in the military for two years. He had a young son um, when his wife was 18 years old. And in his professional life, he finished basic training in the army and went on to study mechanics, spending a year and a half learning uh, machinery parts and how to repair and maintain machines and things like that. From there, he learned about the emerging nuclear program. This was the impetus for his joining this program. He quickly decided to focus his prospects on this, I love this, the glimmering atomic era, as Amber has added Mm -hmm. in here, because it really was that. It was going to... It was good. The, the, the Americans were going to win the Cold War via this. This was mm-hmm. the perspective at the time. Everyone was going to win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. 
Life at home was interesting with Arlene and Jack. In those early years is described in the book as a stressful world of military life where the pay was really low, you're always moving around, and extended family is always way too far away. So the couple quickly realized how little they had. They had no control of their lives, basically. They, it wasn't going well for their marriage, by all accounts. Um, this situation would prove to be very volatile and ultimately destructive for the two uh, and their mm-hmm. family. Oh, yeah. And yeah, McEwen describes frequent instances of just screaming matches, you know, endless yelling fits from Arlene and tossing uh, Jack's clothing out in the yard, uh, frequently witnessed by their military neighbors. It appears that they were always problems with these two, and their relationship was definitely on the rocks and resulting in often violent and loud arguments. So he was not really a character in my mind that you would really want in this situation at a nuclear reactor. Seems kind of um, volatile. <laughs> a little bit volatile. Um, but, I mean, he was also referred to in other lights, too. I mean, McEwen in the book re- repeatedly suggests that many of Jack's friends and co-workers, they did suspect trouble in his marriage. It was kind of like, it wasn't like Two-Face, but it was like Jack could be a really happy-go-lucky guy when he was, like, having a good time. He had a ski buddy that he would frequently go up and do, like, alpine skiing with. And mm-hmm. when they were together, like, his friend described, he was just, like, totally at peace with the world and just, like, a really nice person to be around. Yeah. And then when he was in his... In his marriage, uh, in that situation, he often, yeah, his temper would flare quite frequently. Uh, he would actually often go out and he would tell his wife, because he had two jobs. He was working at the Texaco gas station and he was also working at SL1. Right. And he would often tell her, like, he was working at the gas station when he was actually out on the town and things like that. So I think he quickly realized that despite he, the fact that he wanted to grow up fast and he wanted all these things, he... He had so yeah. little control that he was just so frustrated. I think he, the, the frustration led to anger and led to outbursts in other regards. And he was kind of like, a, I don't know if I've already alluded to this, but he was a little bit of a ladies' man, a little bit. Right. And I guess she did catch him on one, at least one occasion uh, mm-hmm. pretending to be working a night shift when he was actually out sort of catting around on the town. Yep. And like you alert, alluded to earlier on, I mean, this was a very... Uh, a Mormon uh, area and not really known for things like, say, strip strip clubs or, you know, underground bars and things like mm. that. But they did exist. And yep. these, especially because there's military guys around. Yeah, the underground Needed scene. some entertainment, right? <laughs> yeah. But now we get to SL1 and Burns starting his career here. I Interesting juxtaposition with working at a nuclear reactor as well as a Texaco gas station. That's uh, yeah. very curious. But hey, that's the era. Do what you got to do to Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, Burns' professional career was going uh, about as well as his marriage, really. Ultimately, it seemed that Burns had a temper that was impossible for him to control. And he let everyone around him know about it on the job and off the job. He hated uh, subservience to his superiors uh, and he had to do it all the time. You know, well, he had to do it his way, like, or else he he would be so insubordinate. It was ridiculous. Like, right. he often got written up for just like, yeah, talking back, for uh, telling his other coworkers off, or just like basically just like being like throwing his hands up in the air and like like throwing stuff around. Sometimes, like, he would literally have a fit. That's so crazy. And this is all despite his he had a high aptitude, and you know, he was clearly curious and interested in the work. Oh yeah, but he was repeatedly described by his superiors as quote difficult to ma- manage and a problem on the job. Mm-hmm. And this was despite finishing his operator certificates, he was he did really well. Mm-hmm. You know, he he uh, he was passed over for the wanted promotion uh, to chief operator and shift supervisor, which was a huge embarrassment to his personal pride. It was less pay, you know, less of a chance of being considered for a supervisory role. But mm-hmm. overall, he 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 did well in the course. 
Well, that was just it. It was this interesting thing where he had a lot of potential. He was he was brighter than the average person, and at 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 this institution at least. And the thing that was so like you know frustrating for his superiors, I think, was was just that the fact that he couldn't contain himself. He couldn't, um, you know, he could, just couldn't get over it for some, no, for totally. whatever reason. So. Needless to say, yeah, he wasn't going where he wanted to. And I think he was reaching that point where he realized that he wasn't ultimately going to get what he wanted out of it. Nate, so he was kind of a in? loose cannon a mm-hmm. little. Well, yeah. Let's get into Dick Legg for a second here, yeah. though. Because he he's another interesting character. He was actually, he was born a little bit before uh, Burns. So he was born in 1935 on the East Coast again. And he was a sailor who was 25 at the time of his posting at SL1. So like Burns, he originated in humble origins on the East Coast, the youngest of three. He was a stocky, short, outdoorsman-type bachelor from Upper Michigan. <laughs> and he, uh, he had no family when he came to Idaho Falls, but all he had was some archery gear in his back seat. He loved to get out and just shoot with his bow and arrow. Cool. And he was no sports superstar because he was pretty chunky and pretty uh, short. And he was a pretty average student. So he was actually known by most as a prankster and jokester, uh, kind of your typical class clown kind of guy. Interesting. Yeah. So his real passion was the country. He loved the secluded forests of Michigan where he could take his bow and just be in solace with himself. He worked hard at the lumber mill that his father owned. And uh, this was work that, quote, put muscles on Dick, a source of pride for a guy that was touchy about his height of five foot six, end quote. And uh, once he got to Idaho Falls, he did become known as quite a ladies' man, a bit of a loose player, and he was pretty confident in the bar scene. He was ready to pick up and move on if the next lady wasn't working out for him, (laughs) even though he wasn't really a looker. So he really depended on his personality. And it was funny because he actually had these black-framed geek glasses, and he had this large black mole, so he really wasn't uh, your average pretty boy, I would say. But he he did get by, though. He was quite popular. (laughs) But this kind of, again, his personality would kind of become a little bit of a problem for Dick. So unlike Burns, his career was progressing at a decent rate. He wasn't being criticized to the same degree, even though his pranks and jokes sometimes got out of hand. He had actually achieved the promotion of chief uh, operator and shift supervisor, the exact same promotion that Jack Burns wanted. And that was interesting because, again, right, these two were working together on the night. So one was working as the supervisor, one was working as the worker. Burns is known as being very, um, you know, unsubservient. So how do you think that's really going to work out if they're in the same training class and anyways, uh, that's something that I always think about when I think about his promotion there. No, definitely, there. definitely. So one of the real bucks about Leg, like I said, was his propensity to be a jokester. He would actually like wrestle other men on the job, like they're in the control room and he would be like, you know, grabbing someone and yanking them around or doing whatever. He'd pull unnecessary pranks that ultimately degraded the seriousness of his position and put the safety of everyone at risk. So things like triggering alarms for certain detectors for no reason, causing panic until basically like people would like hear an alarm be like, oh, is that just Dick again? And it would be like the boy who cried wolf and ultimately no one would pay attention. So it was like kind of a little bit of an issue there. And he did have a temper too. Uh, So despite his promotion, many of his superiors actually privately questioned his ability to handle the position. And many did think that he had a bit of a small man complex. So 
there was one person actually, this is kind of interesting. So Leg had one superior, it was like a supervisor of sorts, and he was actually out of uh, the state at the time that Dick got his promotion to shift supervisor. Mm -hmm. And when he came back, it was like for like a family funeral or something. And he came back and he was like irate. He was like, this guy should not have ever gotten this promotion. And at the Christmas party, um, so this was December, and this was just after the plant had shut down for the holiday season. It was like a two to three week shutdown. Right. And they were at this Christmas party, and the supervisor approached Dick Leg and said, like, basically confronted him with that. And Dick, like, just blew up. Like, he, like, totally, and it was in front of a lot of people. And he basically just, like, just flew off the handle at this guy and basically secured the, the whole perception that he wasn't fit for the job kind sure, of thing. Sure, yeah. And so McEwan actually uses that to point to a little bit of instability in Dick leading up to, again, this infamous night of January 3rd. So he might have saw the writing on the wall and known that he might have been up for review, potential dismissal, and all this kind of thing. Interesting. So there's another element there I just wanted to include there. How unstable are these I men? I don't know. Let's, we'll get to it eventually. But overall, like just to you know, kind of round it off there, he was described as generally jovial. He had a big personality to add to his petite stature and generally did get along with everyone. Okay, so on December 21st, 1960... The reactor was shut down for scheduled maintenance, and a primary crew operators left for the holidays. On January 3rd, 1961, at 9.01 p.m., as the reactor was being prepared to come back online, procedures required that the central control rod be manually withdrawn by a matter of inches. Specifically, the safe limit of extension was to be reached at 4.2 inches. However, the rod was instead extended approximately 20 inches. Since the control rods regulate the rate of the fission reaction by absorbing excess neutrons, the removal of the central rod past its safe limit caused the reactor to achieve prompt criticality. Consequently, only 4 milliseconds later, enough heat was generated in the surrounding water to cause it to vaporize. This released an extremely concentrated amount of steam up from the reactor, causing the entire housing, weighing 26,000 pounds, to jump 9.1 feet vertically, and for the control rods and various other pieces of the assembly to be propelled upwards with great enough force to become lodged in the ceiling. The blast immediately knocked Army Specialist John A. Burns and Richard Leroy McKinley to the floor, killing Burns, the operator reactor, and severely injuring McKinney, a trainee. The third man, Navy CB construction electrician first class Richard C. Legg, 26, the shift supervisor, who had also been standing atop the vessel, was himself impaled and pinned to the ceiling. The reactor resulted in a total energy release of 133 megawatt seconds. Roughly 30% of the core's fuel inventory was missing from the vessel when examined after the incident. The incident caught the world by surprise. Cleanup of the event exposed hundreds of people to dangerous levels of radiation despite the remote location. End quote. That was from Stanford University. Yeah. So let's just, I, can we just break that all down? 
for a quick sec. Yeah, because that was very cut and dry in my mind. Like you read that and it's like it's almost hard to picture. Yeah. Even though it is pretty visceral, I guess. It is visceral. I mean, I'm reading that and I'm cringing at it because I'm picturing the three of them in their positions in in the room. Mm -hmm. Oh, you say three. I think it's important that we do recognize that there was a third person in the room, like we said, uh, Richard McKinley, who was this trainee. He had actually just been transferred to SL1 uh, days previously. He was brand new. It was one of his first shifts. And he wasn't extensively talked about in uh, McKeown's book just because a lot of people didn't really... He was just, like, unfortunate timing for him. Like, if he could have been anyone in that room other than him, like, he was just there and unfortunately suffered probably the worst injuries, I would imagine, out of the three of them because he didn't die right away. So what's just... After reading that, why don't you just kind of like paint the picture? I mean, literally, I mean, even for me, going back to just the the very first sentence, this idea of a central control rod that's manually maneuvered, manually withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And we've watched uh, some documentaries on this and seen some diagrams and stuff. And we encourage you guys to go check them out. And we'll obviously be posted on social media. But it literally is like a rod that you're grabbing onto. Yeah. It's exactly what you think. So it's like. Exactly. And I will just say um, the function of these rods, I am not a nuclear physicist, but the function of these rods, they are raised and lowered in order to regulate the rate of fission reaction that's happening inside the core of the reactor. So basically controlling how much power is being generated. So when they were, what they were actually doing that night was reassembling the housing in order to um, bring the reactor back online because they had had about two to three weeks where it had been basically just like dormant um, over the holiday break, right? So everyone could have their Christmas and then come back. Right. And so there was a history of these control rods sticking, and we'll get into that as a um, as a possible cause or a contributing factor, I would say, to all of this. But yeah. yeah, that's a good thing to mention right off the bat is the idea that it was the removal of this rod that caused prompt criticality. So basically a, a chain reaction of nuclear fission, which resulted in an explosion of um, basically instantaneous evaporation of water into steam that basically came up as a column and basically just like came up through the top. Like we said, the housing jumped 9.1 feet. Yeah. Um, and, and Dick Leg did suffer very, very serious injury. Well, he died obviously. So, so basically, yeah. So he basically was impaled by the seventh rod. It wasn't the central control rod. It was the seventh rod. It came up through his groin, impaling him through his torso and onto the ceiling above. And it was, I, oh, I hate to get into the whole gr- gruesome details, but one of his left testes was actually found lodged in his armpit. Yeah. Like it was brutal. So the, just think of that pressure. He, yes. It shot this control rod directly impaling mm-hmm. him from the underside through and exactly. onto the ceiling. Onto the ceiling. Meanwhile. When they first came into the room, they only saw two people. They didn't know where the third person was because right. of the state of everything. And they didn't know what, it took them a while to figure out he was on the roof. And then as far as McKinley goes, he was actually, unfortunately, part of his cranium was sheared off by a piece of shrapnel, a piece of radioactive metal. And so that got lodged into his head. And he basically, he was in a state of shock for about two hours. He survived those injuries and was in, found in a nuclear puddle of water um, in, in the state of the chaos. And then, of course, uh, Jack Burns was positioned above the central control rod and he was basically he was dead instantly um, yeah. from what his actions so the, and he was man. the one that was actually positioned 
um, to to be maneuvering the control, the central control rod to lift it slightly, the 4.2 inches as required. And then I believe it was Dick Leg, or I can't remember if it was Dick Leg or if it was McKinley that was responsible for installing a C clamp onto it so that they could put position the housing properly and hmm. uh, position the rod correctly. So, so that we've was, got Dick impaled on the ceiling. We've got yeah. the other two on the ground uh, down below mm-hmm. after this massive explosion, eruption of steam and contaminated radioactive liquid, basically. Yeah. And McKinley, McKinley is still alive. Yeah. And the really crazy part about all this was like, because it was just a three-man team at the site, like they didn't actually have an idea of what had happened until I think it was about a half hour later. And then, and at the time, um, the wife of Jack Burns, so Arlene, was trying to call. And there's like this mysterious, unverified phone call that came from a woman shortly before after, if I'm remembering correctly. And she basically said, there's something wrong at SL1. Yeah, because there was nothing, there was nothing on the outside of the building that indicated there was an explosion. There was no, no damage. There was no nothing. There was just a very small mm-hmm. amount of like smoke and or steam emitting from one of a corner of the building, basically. Yeah. So it wasn't as if it was like a Chernobyl or anything like that, where it was like the entire housing of the complex was compromised. No. This was internal. And so when the first responders came to uh, basically see what was going on, they had no idea what they were walking into. Yeah. And so when they came into that, they had their little units, right? They had their, like, to um, measure the radiation outputs and things like that. And when they realized what, how intensive it was, like, well, initially, they, they ultimately knew that what yeah. they were doing to themselves was going to come back to haunt them, I think. At least the health physicists did. It was the, f- the fire department responded and yeah. they had their radiation meters and they were like, no, like, they only went in, mm-hmm. like, not even halfway or whatever yeah. to, like, towards where they could make any sort of recovery. And there was too much for them. Oh man, the recovery was something. Let's let's get right into that and continue with this morbid curiosity after this explosion because the state of the bodies was such that the recovery was one it was tough because of the radiation and they had to do it in small trips. It was like, we'll get into it was like 15 seconds they were allowed in and right. out kind of thing. Like, so that so. is crazy. But what to me was so I mean just morbid obviously is that these bodies were so badly damaged that initially the rescuers misidentified all three men. Uh, it wasn't until the later autopsies that they were actually identified correctly and these misidentifications were revealed. Mm-hmm. And McKinley was still alive. You yep. can picture this guy soaked in radioactive material, half face blown off, crawling around on the ground. That is a scene. I know. And he was actually carried away in an ambulance because obviously they were trying to save his life. That was the main thing with this is like it was obviously the first of this type of accident and there were people inside that they needed to rescue. In other situations, it was like either they're already dead, like, you know, so you don't have to like really get in there, get in there, or you just know, like, you know, there was no one in there to begin with. But the sad part was he was in that ambulance with a nurse and the nurse, because of the extent of the radiation coming off of him, yeah. she ended up having a pretty grisly death due to, I think it was bone cancer, blood cancer. Man. Later on. But. And it's so fascinating that there was basically no decomposition in oh, the bodies. Yeah, yeah. So a, a, just a lack of decomposition, a quote was, looked like biopsy specimens, the corpses, because mm-hmm. the men were all perfectly sterilized by the intensity of the surrounding radiation field and their initial doses essentially during the blast. Yeah. And, the, you know, despite fears essentially from the recovery team that the decomposition would hamper their efforts, they were exhibiting no decomposition, even dick leg 
pinned to the ceiling. In the heat of the desert. In the heat of the desert. That is absolutely bizarre. Yeah. The autopsies themselves were obviously, this was a particularly horrible task uh, for the morticians who had to deal with this because this is lethal amounts of radiation being released from the bodies of these three men. And a team of doctors used a lead shield hung from a crane and 10-foot rods with utensils on them. Even longer. I can't remember it may, it's oh, about that. Yeah. So anyway, this was quite the, quite the effort. Uh, so anyway, hung, hung these from a crane with utensils on them to operate uh, on the men to salvage what they could at first. Uh, they tried to shear away most of the radioactive materials from the bodies using detectors and saws to cut away the materials. But these initial efforts were soon matched by the unwavering reality that basically the entire bodies of these men were as radioactive as radioactive can be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm picturing like so glowing sad. corpses, even though it wouldn't literally be. Oh, yeah. And they're, yeah. And the sad part was like these doctors and morticians were tasked with providing a body for the families. That's what they need. Because like they could have just been like, nope, this is all highly like radioactive, like highly classified, cannot be like, you know, released at all. But because of the nature of it and because they were servicemen, it was like this whole effort was just to be able to provide something. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Which is so sad because obviously they had to take these things far away. These things. I'm saying that. These bodies. Yeah, and on the sad. 12th of January, this is a little bit later on, the, the bones, flesh, head, limbs, organs, they were cut out of these three servicemen corpses, um, put in a 50-gallon drum, which was then lowered into a lead-shielded box. This box was then transported on a semi-trailer and driven to an isolated section of the vast testing station grounds and essentially uh, buried, um, dumped into a deep silt trench, which had to be a, a addressed a little later on as well because there was still high levels of radiation being emitted from it but mm -hmm. the that body was a quote from McEwan there yeah, yeah. I, oh man i'm just it's definitely this is, yeah dark stuff dark mm -hmm. stuff for sure because it wasn't as if all of there was so mckinley's head had to be cut off removed because of the shrapnel that had been lodged inside of his skull it was just irrecoverable like the amounts of radiation it was uh, emitting there, there was aspects that were left. Like it was, it was very piecemeal though. It was very sad. And then most of it did end up in, yeah, like you said, like the testing grounds, uh, like basically just nuclear waste dump. Yeah. And, and of course, like we sort of alluded to off the top, this was all kind of swept under the rug, right? Like the original yeah. autopsy report was completed. It was marked for official use only. It was essentially classified information. It was like the next level down from classified. Just a hairpin down Never from classified. Never released for public information. No. no way. The bodies themselves were actually labeled uh, leaded packages uh, when they were wrapped, wrapped in multiple sheets of thick plastic, uh, and lead encased boxes. So they were, mm -hmm. they were labeled as such for shipment, right? That's kind of sad. Like the reports referred to the men as leaded packages. Like they didn't yeah. even refer to them as people, like, you know, like, which is a, a way of, uh, sanitizing the situation for, you know, like a public record and thing like that. But again, it kind of points to these, these little, little, little points of, uh, cover up a little yeah. bit. Oh no, absolutely. Except for this one little tidbit here, which is just a particularly uh, sort of almost laughable uh, morbid curiosity. But before the men closed and sealed the coffin lids, they slipped two signs inside. One was made of cardboard and declared, quote, caution, high radiation. And you sort of made this uh, comment about like grave, <laughs> grave robbing or like accidental construction. And you dig these things mm -hmm. up or something like that. And you just see a cardboard sign like, hmm, 
Oh my gosh. That's like a Stephen King novel or something. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like kind of like a public service announcement, but like don't rob these graves, I guess, or don't do anything with these things because yeah, these are highly contaminated packages. Seriously. And they still were, I mean, they still are to, to this day because essentially in the early 2000s, there was still such high levels of radiation emitting through the ground where these where these uh, where where the the lead lined coffins were originally dumped, they had to add extra layers of protection. I believe it was just a massive amount of like gravels and boulders. They just like moved mm-hmm. in raw material and tried to give it an extra layer because it was still admitting just these. Just they're not these massive objects. It's not like it's like a buried nuclear plant. Like yeah. that's what's so fascinating about this energy to me. And just being attached to bodies. It's still down there emitting energy. It's, yeah, it's a very intriguing, like when you start to look into, like, when I get bogged down to nuclear physics, I just start to lose my mind. But it's very interesting the way that radiation uh, works. Um, like, you know, like the idea that basically these, the breakdown of these cells and like the different rates of decay and, and basically just like these high emissions of different gamma rays, beta waves, like alpha waves, all of these different types of things that just continuously, like, you know, it takes like thousands of years. And like you said, like, yeah, like they made all these special, um, like updated protocols and, and extra levels of protection. And even when they gave the bodies, uh, to be like, you know, like laid to rest, the funerals were very short. They were like 10 minutes long. Everyone was positioned very far away. I think it was like 50 feet away or 100 feet away kind of thing. And then, um, yeah, afterwards, like it was just like, get out of here. Like, you know, which to me, I'm still trying to, I feel like that was such a big compromise, right? For the military to release those bodies, like public safety and national safety and all that kind of stuff. And like not know the unknowability of what was going to come from all of that. Yeah, I feel true. like all of that just paints like such an interesting picture of how things like this were dealt with back in the day. Hey, yeah, and all the stuff yeah. that we don't really get to see in the news or, or anything like, you know, it's mostly just left to the government, uh, reports before the like 24 that. hour newsreel, uh, really as well here at this era. Yeah, that's true. But still, I mean, we're getting mm-hmm. down here to the, the how the hell this happened and the why. why, really, because, yeah. Because like we said in the report um, from Stanford, it was very clear that it was the fact that the central control rod was basically pulled up way too far. And there was a history of sticking with these control rods. So SL1 was kind of plagued by this, and this affected the stability of the reactor, so basically what was happening during these routine operations where they would um, extend and then uh, descend these different rods, there would be basically, yeah, like how you can't really describe anything else, just sticking. And they would literally have to like hammer on them or like, you know, or they would do different things to make them unstick. And basically this was a huge design flaw. No doubt. <laughs> this was also comp- uh, complicated by the fact that there was these boron elements that were wearing off the bottoms of the rods. So these were actually a stabilizing element. And these, this was actually known about for months and months and ignored despite the reports creating awareness of the situation. Yikes. There was supposedly a plan to replace, I think, aspects of the reactor in the spring of uh, 1961, but a little too late, I would say. Yeah. So yeah, it, it appears as though this combined with a decentralized management kind of diffused the responsibility for this and no branch kind of took the necessary steps to repair the reactor as needed. So I kind of see this as like a classic case case of neglect to a certain degree. That's what it seems like anyway, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. But added to that was the idea that, and this is interesting, 
The only rod with no history of sticking was the central control rod. That one was always okay. Everyone hmm. attested to that before and after this happened. And there was extensive interviews. They would go back and re-interview people. And anyway, so this was used as a kind of an explanation for perhaps uh, a deliberate sort of sabotage a, a sabotage or like, suicide no, it's, it's, or yeah, exactly. whatever you want to call it depending on the motivation it just seems like with the factor of sticking absent it's highly unlikely that the rod would have been in that position unless it was intentional and they actually did do tests with volunteers of all sizes to see if they could recreate sticking conditions that could result in the raising of over 20 inches and none of these people came close to this degree of miscalculation or margin of error so it, was, it seemed very intentional and it well, just kind of adds to the mystery where it's like, why would you commit suicide, murder-suicide? Why would you do that? Kamikaze? Like, what's the point? Like, well, yeah. I mean, because we're talking about... Or did about you not know that would happen? Like, 4.2 inches to, to 20. And like, even that's, the, other that's reports, the difference. Other reports says it was as high as 26 inches. Crazy. Yeah. Hmm. So either, in my mind, this, like I said, it points to an ignorance of understanding as to the damage you would cause... Or it points to something very deliberate. So is there some motivation to commit murder-suicide? And some people look at Dick Legg and Jack Burns, or John Burns. Like We've referred to him as Jack throughout this entire episode, but some people do say John Burns. But some spectators have pointed to some sort of love triangle or some kind of jealousy or bad blood between the men as prompting a sudden move towards this type of action. And this is totally unsubstantiated that there was any sort of love triangle going on. It doesn't appear as if the men were close or, like I said, even knew each other at all um, throughout their training and even while stationed in Idaho Falls. They didn't go out together. The only real known documented incident between the two happened at a bachelor party. And this was a pretty wild night of heavy drinking, carousing at bars until they ended up at a sergeant's residence. And they encountered a lady of the night uh, known as Mitzi. And Mitzi had her way with a few of the men, including Burns, but not Leg. And so what happened was, I guess Burns had a very uh, <clears throat> brief encounter with Mitzi. And um, Leg potentially called him out on it and was making fun of him for that. And they had an exchange <laughs> or something happened. And neither of the men explained what happened afterwards, but they basically got into a bit of a brawl. Gotcha. And they were either too drunk to remember or didn't want to admit what happened. But yeah, they ended up breaking out into a fist fight. And this was used to point to speculation of some type of rivalry. Sure. And perhaps yeah. some people even said they had competing, quote, visions of morality. So... Perhaps hmm. Leg was actually saying something a little bit more of a jab towards um, Burns for, like, you know, cheating on his wife and all that kind of thing. So who knows? But there were subsequent rumors in the following months of a tryst of some type between one of the men's wives. But this was totally unsubstantiated and kind of just was a lot of gossip. It's small town gossip is kind of what uh, McEwan chalked it up to, at least. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this resurfaced in the wake of the investigation into the disaster. So uh, there was nothing really to beyond this one encounter to kind of substantiate it. But like I said before, Burns was passed up for that promotion. Leg got that promotion. Burns already potentially doesn't like Leg because of what happened that night. So when they're in that room together, 
like it, to me is, that yeah. doesn't point to murder suicide that that's very extreme but what if burns because this is a possible thing that people bring up what if burns thought that his act of sabotage wouldn't result in that sort of catastrophe but would result in something malfunctioning something that leg would be responsible for ultimately yeah so that again might point to some sort of level of ignorance in in the dangers associated with what they were doing i think and so I maybe was, some yeah. petty sabotage petty sabotage that type of thing there was this interesting statement in the cover letter on the final report, and this was made by committee chairman Curtis Nelson, who offered these options as possible conclusions. And he said, quote, involuntary performance of the individual manipulating the control rod as a result of unexpected stimulus or malperformance motivated by emotional stress or instability. So he kind of, he does point to Burns as being ultimately the one that should be examined the closest, I think, and ultimately kind of can go either way because you don't really know what was going through his mind in that exact second. One thing we didn't mention about Burns was the fact that him and Arlene had gotten into a really, really big fight that night and that they had had a screaming match on the phone like probably about half an hour before this happened. So that's kind of another thing too where it's like maybe he was just really fed up. And he just like was like, I'm not going anywhere with my life. My wife hates me. I don't want my kid anymore. I don't want my life. I don't know where to go from here because I don't have my professional goals being achieved because I'm such a angry person. So what am I doing here? What if he just like was like, screw it. That's it. You know, some people do think of that, but there are other ideas too. Yeah, I suppose that's possibility. I it's yeah. After you saying all that stuff, it's kind of a lot to take in. Um, I don't, I just don't see the fight at a, at a party. Yeah. Leading, leading to that type of a confrontation at work, other than the fact that one was passed up over the promotion over the other Dick over Richard and the, or sorry, Dick over Jack and the Arlene thing. Who commits suicide that way? I mean, who, who pulls out a, a, a nuclear control rod to explode nuclear contaminated steam all over themselves and like that's the explosion like, too like yeah the i just don't I, like that just seems b- bizarre also yeah. i know you they had you know like these the, the mock rooms where they did these like trials and so they knew how to like handle when stuff was going wrong and stuff like that but like did they ever have one where it was like you know practice so you have the feel of this manual control rod so that it doesn't come out an extra 16 inches or more depending you know what i mean like yeah, it's kind of like hey don't do this like you know about it but yeah. would you actually practice or would you have been told what because the other thing too that we should probably mention is the fact that sl1 was considered the most stable reactor because it had been subjected to i can't remember how many hundreds of different uh, tests and stresses in it before it was like an operational thing um, to make it explode. And literally the guy that designed this reactor said, I think he worked for Argonne Laboratories, and he said, this reactor is unexplodable. <laughs> he said, there's no way you can make this thing explode. But it seems like there were definitely some ways you could do that. But there's always a way you can make it explode. Isn't that strange though? The fact that it was like subjected to so many hundreds of tests and it was basically just seen as this, like, basically indestructible piece of equipment. Just, like, throw it in there. It's a workhorse. It'll do what you need it to do. Right. It's, like, you know, it's your, what was it called? The low stationary power. 
Uh, yeah, it was meant to be simple mm-hmm. and simple to operate. Hence the people running it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I'm not I'm not vibing with the murder suicide thing, even though it is interesting and there's some stuff to tie back to. I'm going to move into another thing that we've just sort of brought up. This is purely our own conjecture. But the idea of potentially some sort of foreign government involvement in this, not directly per se, not like straight out of a Hollywood movie, but maybe, but maybe, Uh, (laughs) because this is obviously the Cold War, right? And we've alluded to earlier in the episode that SL1 specifically and the Idaho Falls development and all that, all of that complex was pretty intimately linked to Arctic projects and military installations that were meant to be monitoring Soviet progress, power, nuclear technology, these types of things. So it sort of ties into this idea. We've actually, uh, it came up listening to a Can't Make This Up History podcast episode titled uh, Russians Among Us uh, with uh, Gordon uh, Carrera. Highly recommended. Oh my gosh, so good. Loved it. And obviously there's the TV show, The Americans, but this notion of planting in positions of power in order to usurp knowledge, potentially sabotage American installations, discover military information and things like this. Mm Mm-hmm. It was an easy, not an easy, but a easy-ish program to get into. So for a foreign government to have someone who is Americanized, you know, no accent, yeah. no nothing, to get into a program like that mm-hmm. seems a lot more likely. That's a, that's, a, that's a good way to get into the military than yeah. going directly through the military, right? Than, than being like, I'm going to apply, I'm going to be a pilot or I'm going to be a whatever. I don't even know. Like, I'm not intimately familiar, but like, it just seems like a good way to get in. It does. And that's what they would do is like in in the Chemics of History podcast episode, like he does a really good job of kind of sussing out how they live their lives and the minutia of it. Because it's not like this Hollywood glamour where you're like in like, you know, like the <laughs> in the dark alleys and doing your, you know, your cool like spy, like, you know, stuff like uh, James Bond or something like that. But mm-hmm. it was very much a minutia. It was an entire life you had to adopt. Usually they would go in as pairs because pairs were more likely to stick to the program and not defect. Right. And they would often have children too. And the children would be completely unaware of this. And they would basically put themselves in very, like they'd go and work at the post office. They would go work wherever and they'd slowly try and work their ways into privileged positions. Either like a lot of women would do this through marriage and then a lot of men would do this through their careers, obviously. So yeah, yeah, it could have been one of those cases where it's like, was Burns a Russian spy? And then he just committed kamikaze. He's like, I'm done with this. Or, Or that was his aim was to try and sabotage the SL1 program to an extent that they just basically went back to the drawing board yeah potentially kind of loosey i don't know like like yeah like is his is his you know are his antics like wrestling with people is that just like the hardcore like playing the part like really no no speculation on me leg was was the one that was more of the prankster guy but burns was the one that was super angry all the time oh right that sounds pretty russian yeah that does sound (laughs) well hey yeah Mm. Yeah, no, obviously this is a pretty out there mm-hmm. idea, Very, but there's definitely some just, you know, a laundry list of very interesting things from this era connected to SL1. Like I, I alluded to again off the top of the show, the USS Nautilus, which was of course the name of the sub uh, in, uh, not Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh, uh, uh, 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Or 20,000. Or 20,000. Yeah, whatever. Yes. Is that it? Yeah. 20,000. 20,000, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, with Captain Nemo or yep. Nemo, Captain Nemo, as it was. Um, but this was a real sub, nuclear sub that was first launched in the 1950s. And it's related to a lot of sort of strange stories about like telepathic communications and sort of weird tests out there. That's a story for another day, but it still ties back to SL1 and monitoring Russian activity and technological advancement. 
I think there is a possibility that one of these guys was related loosely, maybe even as like sort of like, I don't know, I want, I don't want to say private contractor in like the, the spy and espionage world, but you know, Ooh. not necessarily like hardcore Russian government, but that's use, what, like getting in there. But that's what they were so good at is, is doing that and being literally entirely disconnected from the government. They had no, they weren't like passing notes or like leaving like, you know, little pieces of paper in like a brick behind a certain alleyway or something. There was nothing like that. It was a complete disconnect, which, which obviously lent credibility to their presence. And, and then eventually once they got the information they needed, that's how they would eventually go through those channels. But you know what I mean? Like it was like a complete disconnect. Right. But, which makes it, but because of that disconnect, would you feel so pathetic that you failed if you got passed over on the position that you need to, that that you need be. to yank it out and do it. Like if you're that indoctrinated mm-hmm. into the culture, you haven't had these connections. You're not, you don't have the note in the brick oh thing going gosh. on. Well, if you get into even more of the weeds with that one, what if Arlene, again, what if Arlene was involved and she played a part in all of that and, and maybe there were some furthering complications in their maybe they weren't even lovers. They probably were, but like, you know what I mean? Like maybe this is so hypothetical, but like if they were both involved and there was complications in their relationship that went beyond just the complications of a marital relationship. I don't know. I don't know. And then the fact that that mysterious woman that called and was probably Arlene, but was never confirmed and said, there's something wrong on SL1. And like, it was, that was just a really weird little aspect. Yeah. We never really went into that, but that sort of, you could, you could in a roundabout way use that to kind of prop up this idea mm-hmm. because that is very odd that it would be, because why would Arlene call and not say who it was? And not Maybe say, she, oh man, there was, there was a series of calls. I think there was either two or three. And like, I think the last two weren't picked up and maybe that's why she called i can't remember who she actually called i think it was like the um uh the surveillance team that was like on the testing grounds but wasn't actually at the reactor it was something like that where it was someone just adjacent to them and then basically they sounded the alert and all that kind of stuff right but really creepy when they first walked into that building and basically were like, what's going on here? It's just abandoned. Oh, it looks like there's people just eating lunch on the lunchroom table. There's three plates and some food. And then it looks like they just went back to their work or something. And then they get closer and closer and their Geiger counters just start going up and up and up. And they're just like, oh, what? And then they walk into that. Yeah, the f- just an epic disaster. And we didn't even get into the recovery of Dick Lake's body. They had to use like a crane and like a whole experimental, like all of this was unprecedented. So there were so many things they had to figure out as far as like cleaning this up. Like it just was very, very, very fascinating, very brutal at the same time. I would definitely recommend anyone that's been just on the edge of their seat listening to this episode, you need to go buy that book by William McKeon and just give that a good read because yeah. I really appreciated Kimberly passing that along to us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I guess, I don't know, in conclusions, like what do we ultimately make of this accident in the wider scope of U.S. history? Like the, the contributing factors? Like would you, do you have any other like sort of comments to make? Or? Well, I was so – the thing that most interested me was the um, – like the testing they did after the fact to see what the hell happened with this control rod. Like they tested at different sized people, pulling at different strengths, like moving it around at different angles and things like this. And it just – it never did the same thing. It mm-hmm. didn't move out to the 20 plus inches beyond where mm-hmm. it was supposed to go, go in critical in four milliseconds or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. That, that to me directly points to sabotage. 
I don't think that the ineptitude of training or maybe even what being hung over on the job or being pissed off at your wife or I don't think any of that had anything to do with it. I think there was something going on with with Jack. With Jack Burns. Hmm. I think we'd have to go way more in depth with him and it potentially wouldn't even be found doing that. It would be associations to him there. You maybe would find some nuggets to go down a different rabbit hole or two. But to me, I just can't reconcile that, the, 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 the research done after the fact as to what actually happened. It's either a one in a billion fluke to me or, or it's, or it is sabotage and there's something deeper going on here. I know. I always just go to so many like what ifs and, but what about that? And like, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I feel like even that, uh, that test that you just mentioned there where they had all those volunteers trying to yank up a quote, like artificially stuck, like, you know, they would stuck it and then they would un, they would like basically release it at an unknown moment. And then right. they would have to like, you know, yeah. um, recalculate the amount of pull they and had control it and, and control it exactly and none of them came to even close to that margin of error and even that test in itself was trying to create some sort of benefit of the doubt for burns because no one could figure out why he would have done that and yeah. it's just really sad it's like imagine if those two imagine if it hadn't been dick leg on shift because that was actually like basically one of the very first shifts that they worked together yeah they never they never worked together before then mm. so maybe they were just two volatile people that should not have been in the same room together and and then stuff happened like what if leg had been off and it had been someone else as the shift supervisor that night would burns have done the same thing see but then that goes back to the more of like less you know political sabotage or something mm -hmm. like that and more just psychological issues well but you yeah or but, not even political it could just be personal like i'm just done with this screw this i'm just ending it all just like people do when they're like walking down the side of the highway and they just walk in front of a semi or something i suppose you know? poor uh the, the poor third guy though oh i know i mean like mckinley yeah he was only 21 i think he just yeah like i don't know like i guess if you did like had a psychologist profile i i don't know if you would find the signs i know it does not always map out that way but yeah. i don't know if you'd find those those real nuggets of like yep those are some real red flags with with jack you know what i mean it's like okay you got a temper marital problems mm -hmm. you don't like dick these are common things they are very, these, are, yeah. these are not these are not necessarily signs that you are going to be a homicidal maniac essentially if you did this on purpose because well. Listen to a couple of case files and maybe change your mind. <laughs> I know, but those are, those are, I know it happens all the time, but like those are special situations though. Like this, th there's yeah. no indication. There's nothing in the past of these two people other than some general temper and marital problems that Whoa. point to this. And then a trend of a pattern of instability at work too. Sure. Sure. I know. But it, it, it's just, <laughs> like, I know we could go back and forth like literally for days and days and days yeah. about this. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, like my other questions, like, I guess you've already kind of talked about your favorite ideas and theories. We've talked about McKeown's approach to the subject. I think he did a really fair job um, to the whole, to the people, to the victims, the families, to the military and everyone else, right? Like he's not, he's not just being like shaking his finger at one person or whatever. Like no, he's just no. very genuine in how he goes about it, which I appreciated. I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I had this quote here from Daniel Berrios. Are we ready to do that? It's yeah, just, definitely. It's just talking about the legacy of SL1. And so he says here, quote, The events of that night sparked several long-lasting consequences. Besides ending the usage of the design in all further reactors and leading to a widespread overhaul of safety procedures in all future designs to prevent the possibility of prompt criticality, 
The incident caught the world by surprise. Cleanup of the event exposed hundreds of people to dangerous levels of radiation, despite the remote location. In doing so, it took what was hailed as a revolutionary technology that was to provide a seemingly unlimited, stable power source at little cost, and turned it into an issue of public concern and skepticism that continues to plague the field to this day, as demonstrated by Figure 2 which we won't include for you guys, sorry. (laughs) How that skepticism plays out in the future as we continue to advance in nuclear technology remains to be seen, end quote. That was from Mm. Daniel Berrios. Uh, He wrote several several works about the, the issue and everything. And we've quoted from him. We've quoted from Stanford University. We've quoted mm-hmm. from McEwan and others too throughout this episode. And Yeah, first yeah. nuclear disaster on American soil, everybody. Yeah. First fatalities. First fatalities. It was shocking. It really changed the landscape of what we perceived as safe Yeah, when no it came doubt. to atomic energy. So we want to know what you guys think about this mystery. Do you have any uh, thoughts, favorite ideas or theories? Anything that we've not included too, if you know yeah, something about this story. Definitely. And if you're leaning towards, I mean, yeah, like what what do you think about uh, about about Dick and about Dick yeah. Legg and Jack Burns? And 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 if if what we've described about these two men kind of point to one direction or the other with these theories, with the sabotage mm. or with, you know, just, just things not going quite right that day, uh, maybe. Yeah. But super dark, uh, a very much a morbid, a morbid story that we enjoyed reading and learning about because there's so much history packed into it as well, mm-hmm. um, which is totally our jam. But yeah, you guys got to hit us up and let, let us know what you think. If you don't already, come follow us on social media so you can see all the cool stuff we're posting with this episode and other stuff. It's at Into the Portal Podcast on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At Strange Pods is the network account as well. Yeah, it's Strange Pods. Make sure you go follow them this week because we are actually announcing our uh, latest contest. Yeah. It's a network wide contest. Uh, if you listen to our show, if you listen to anyone from the Straight Up Strange Network, you should probably go follow us on Instagram so you can get your hands on some of these cool yeah. stickers. There's, yeah, original designs. It's going to be a really cool little prize pack. So, yeah, make mm-hmm. sure you guys go follow that account and stay tuned for that contest. And there's going to be some, uh, some sweet free stuff you can mm-hmm. win. As always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters, everyone out there who supports the show and listening to the show, our producer, Tim Godby, mm-hmm. and everyone out there listening today. Yes, thank so, you. Until next time, on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.